0: Good morning, Doxa. How are we doing? Hey, my name's Nate. I'm, I'm new on staff here. Um, if we haven't met before, I would love to, to get to know you. But um, Doxa, thank you so much for welcoming me and my family really well. You guys have been generous and kind. Um, it's been a blast to get to know you. So again, if we haven't met, I'd love to meet you. Grab me after service. Um, my name's Nate. The, this morning we're going to continue our, our First John series. And I want to put a verse up on screen for us. Um, First John 2.15 will be in our passage today. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, can we just acknowledge really quick, even if you're like new to church, this is the kind of thing you'd expect to hear in a church, right? Like, don't love the world. Some guy like me standing on stage and telling you, don't love the world. Have, have you ever tried to just not love something? You know what I'm talking about? Like that's a bad diet plan where it's like, yeah, I'm just going to not love pizza. Yeah, right. Okay, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not love ice cream on a, on a hot summer night, whatever. Someone say love. Sometimes it can feel like you're almost a victim of the things that you love, and so you hear a command like this, and you're like, yeah, but, I, but what if I do love the world? And John isn't, isn't mixing his, his terms there. He's saying, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. But I, I think sometimes if we don't know how to obey a command we're either just depressed and despondent and feel terrible about ourselves, or we kind of all agree to just not really take it that seriously. Let's just all agree to kind of not not really deal with the fact that actually we do struggle with loving the world, and we don't even really know what that means. Like, like if you take it seriously, does it really mean that you're supposed to move out to a commune on the land, you know, and, and like grow your own kale or something? Some of you are like, yeah, I've been churning butter for months. I'm ready, right? Doc's a commune. Let's go. Does it mean we take this antagonistic stance towards our city and we just shake our fists from a distance and go, We don't love the world like some people. We don't love the world like you people. But really? Like, are, are we supposed to take this oppositional stance to everything? Where are we supposed to actually go love our neighbors then and share the gospel? If that's how we're supposed to interpret it, what about our friends that we got to send to Osaka? Do we tell them like, hey, move out of the city, go build a little shack in the woods somewhere, and then you'll reach Japan, right? In fact, if you look at Jesus' life and ministry, he kept getting in trouble because he kept showing up at parties (laughs) and being around these people that looked like the world. His first miracle was turning water into wine, and the religious people were like, no, 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 you you can't do that. We have to take this command seriously because John puts in no uncertain terms if you love the world that says something very real and serious about your spiritual condition. But again, if I just left you with that this morning, you might feel powerless to obey and and not even really understand what it means. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, again, you're not surprised some guy like me is telling you don't love the world. But let's be honest, maybe you don't feel like you have another option. Like if you're not sure about what's after this life, then, then what else do you have to love except the world? Like your life has been this, this series of chasing money or relationships or, or, or whatever, and maybe you're even here this morning because you, you get that that doesn't work. You keep trying and trying, and, and you know it's not satisfying you, and so you're not really sure why you're around all these church people, but, but maybe there is something to this. Whether you're a Christian or not, this morning there's something God's word has for us. And so we need to dive deep into First John 2 to understand both, both what this command actually means and then how God is inviting you to obey it. Does that sound good? Some say, yep. All right, open your Bibles. First John 2 will be in 12 through 17. I'll give you a little context while we're, while we're flipping there. Um, John is this kind of Grandpa John figure. Rob talked about a couple weeks ago. He walked with Jesus, he was one of the original disciples, and he's writing this letter now as an old man with some pretty serious warnings. He's saying, hey, if you walk in the darkness, you don't have fellowship with, with the God of light. If you hate your brother, it's incompatible with saying that you love God, and now he's, he's continuing that theme and going, hey, if you, if you love the world, there's no room in your heart for God's love. But what John is going to do, we've kind of got two halves of our passage here. Verses 12 through 14, he's going to take a a little bit of a surprising direction and, and tell them why he's writing the letter and kind of secretly, subtly give them all this identity language, like who they really are. And then he's going to tell us the command that we have to obey. All right? And hopefully, as we see these two pieces together, we'll actually be able to understand both what it means to not love the world and then how regular people like us can obey it. All right? Let's go there. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Open your Bibles. I'd love for you to just follow with me verse by verse. So so what he's going to do in these verses is he's got three groups of people that that he's talking about. He says little children, fathers, and young men. Someone say children. All right, when he talks to the community of believers in 1 John, over and over he calls us children. Right, that's Christians in general, Children. And then these two terms, the the fathers and the young men, are a little bit confusing. Like scholars disagree over who he's talking about. Maybe certain officers in the church or literally like men and and young men. I think the clearest uh, of of all of the arguments actually is that he's talking to different levels of maturity in in a room like this. All right, this whole letter is written to a church community and so when he's using these terms, he's talking about spiritually mature. When he says fathers, it's like fathers and mothers of the church. When he says young men, it's like young believers. You have just come to know Jesus. You're full of energy and zeal. But little children is is all of us. If you're a Christian this morning, you're counted in that. Verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. So he says, I'm writing to you, like I'm writing this letter to you right now. This is the reason for it, that because statement. And it's because isn't because you guys need to step up or shape up or try harder. It's because is because something has already happened to you. Do you catch that? He says, I, I, I can write these challenges and commands and warnings to you because you've already been forgiven. Like if you're a Christian in the room this morning, if you're a Christian receiving this letter from John, something has happened to you where you're a forgiven kind of person. Your sins have been forgiven. Someone say, sin. Sin is anything that goes against the character and nature of God. It's, it's both literally disobeying what God invites us to do, what we were created to do in walking in relationship with Him, but it's also those, those sins where we kind of don't do things we're supposed to do. The thing that would separate you from relationship with the God that made you, the God that designed you, the God that knows you, the God that loves you, those things, you've actually been forgiven of that. That's why you can have commands like these. You've been forgiven but why were we forgiven? He says, for his name's sake." You were forgiven, yes, for you, but even more than that, because God put his reputation on the line when it came to your forgiveness. You ever thought about that? Like, forgiveness is an incredible benefit to you, but even more than that, God put his reputation on the line when he promised to send a redeemer. When God promised that he would save people, when God promised that he would forgive, God put his own name on the line. It's not just about us receiving forgiveness all that's part of it, but your life, if you're a forgiven person, is like a canvas. And God is painting his character over it. He is gracious, he is faithful, he is kind, he is true to his promises. John is starting this section by kind of defending his writing to you by saying, hey, the kind of person you are means you can receive this. You are the kind of person who's been forgiven, So, you have access to God, and you're the kind of person that God has chosen to stake his reputation on treating you a certain way. All right, there's a lot of identity already in just that first bit for all of us, but now he's going to talk to the fathers and mothers, the spiritually mature in the room. He says, verse 13 I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I can write these challenges and commands because I know that you know Jesus. And part of the amazing thing in this is that John literally physically walked with Jesus. Like we talk about walking with Jesus. Dude, like got up in the morning, ate breakfast with Jesus, and watched him do ministry. And he's looking at mature men and women and saying, hey, you know him also. They didn't get the benefit of seeing him face to face, but they can know him in a real and true way. And he does something amazing when he defines maturity in these terms. He's saying it's not so much what you know, but who you know right? My wife and I got to be in Albania for a year. Um, if you don't know where Albania is, welcome to the club. Totally makes sense. How many of you are like, yeah, Albania. It's on my bucket list. No, okay. Um, if you can picture like Italy, that boot shape. Okay, one of you. That's great. We'll talk later. Um, the, the boot shape of Italy, just straight to the east across the Adriatic. It's this mountainous country, kind of tumultuous history, but, but beautiful place. And, and moving there for a year, we were going, we were sent by Cornerstone, the church that planted Doxa, to go work on a Albanian church planting and college ministry staff. And when you think of moving to another country, there are all kinds of challenges that we, honestly, we were kind of preparing ourselves for, right? Like you had to learn a new language. So we had to learn Albanian to buy groceries. And I, I didn't take Albanian in high school. I don't know about you. That, that was not something I'd done before. Or um, there were packs of wild dogs in our city. And so as I would go for a run, I had to kind of mentally map out where the wild dogs would sleep during the day just so I didn't get chased by wild dogs, right? Okay, all these things that you, you, you're kind of expecting you have to overcome, but, but the one thing I, I, I wasn't really looking forward to, or sorry, the one thing I wasn't expecting so much was actually how hard the ministry relationship was. And the thing I didn't expect about it was that I, I was actually the biggest problem in the relationship. Anybody got a relationship like that? Don't raise your hand, okay? Um, but When it came to relating to our Albanian ministry partners, I I had just finished a a master's in theology. So I had a big theological brain. I had read some big books. I had done ministry in the States for a few years. And I showed up going like, I got this. Like I know a lot of the right answers. I know what I'm talking about. and, And I would get into these conversations with my Albanian ministry partner. And listen, I was right about a lot of things, but I was right in the wrong way. I thought I was mature and I had tricked myself into it because I had a lot of right answers. And in reality, I wasn't. Have you ever ever caught yourself there? Where you you feel like you're mature because you've got these right answers and you've been around, you can kind of do the church game, but, but really John is saying there's something more to it than that. Maturity is knowing Jesus and walking with him. Have you met somebody who, who the sense you get about them is, man, you walk with Jesus? It's not so much about knowing all the answers, because again, we can learn to play the church game and give the right answers, but, but someone who walks with Jesus in a very real way where it affects your decisions and your emotions and your relationships and everything. John is saying, I can write to you spiritual mothers and fathers of this place. I can write to you because... Because you know him. Like I've been around you, I've done ministry, I know that you've walked closely with Jesus. And just as an aside, Doxa, you know that, that college ministry is the front of the bus for us. We love reaching the next generation. That's a mission God's given us. But, but for you who are mature, we are not trying to put you out to pasture. We are not saying like, hey, you need to go sit on the sidelines. We actually are, are asking you to get in the game. We need mothers and fathers in this place. We need you to love and to show what it looks like to walk with Jesus for a long time. The church needs that. We're not just obsessed with kind of youth or flash or whatever. We need mothers and fathers, not to be retired but redeployed for the mission in this place. Okay. All of us as little children, if if you are a Christian this morning, you are a child of God and you've been forgiven. Mothers and fathers, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you know that the trajectory and orientation of your life, again, is not just right answers, but relationship with Him. And the final group of people, continuing verse 13, as he says, I'm writing to you, young men, or, or you who are kind of young believers in the room, because you have overcome the evil one, you have overcome the devil. Like the enemy of your soul, you have overcome him. That is big and bold language to talk to the least mature in the room, right? That's a little bit like rocket fuel for you. If you like came to Christ this morning, you would be counted among the people that have overcome Satan himself. That's crazy. And and it's not because you've accomplished something. It's not because you've all of a sudden achieved a certain level of perfection. You've been counted in the victory of Jesus. You are a person who's overcome even if you're the least spiritually mature person in the room, because statistically, one of you is the least spiritually mature, right? Like you, if you're like, that's me, you have overcome the evil one. That's amazing. I think he's reminding us of this partially as as encouragement. Like there there are going to be times where you look at sin in your life and you're like, man, I, I haven't beat this yet. Why haven't I beat this yet? I've been a Christian for two months. Why have I not gotten this solved, Right? No, 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 you've overcome the evil one. It's been done. It fights against depression when we see real sin or when we come up against commands that we struggle to obey, but it also fights against complacency. From the the least mature to the most mature in the room, hey, if you've overcome the evil one, why would you let sin just kind of fester and live in your life? Why would you grow complacent? Or why would you read the commands of God that are good for you and and kind kind of sidestep them Monday morning? He says, I'm writing this letter to you, little children, mothers and fathers, and young men and women, because of who you are. I can speak to you with a level of challenge and authority because of who you are. Now he's going to almost poetically repeat this again, and he's going to re-emphasize some different things. Look at him continue in verse 13. He says, I write to you. He changes the Greek word from I'm writing this letter to I write to you generally, my ministry to you. Like why I can write any of these things to you as believers all right, you children, because you know the Father. You know the Father. If you are a child, then you you have a seat at the Father's table. Again, who you are, if you're a Christian this morning, is not just a forgiven person, is not just a church person. You have a seat in eternity at the Father's table. You've been adopted into the family of God. You look at the God of the universe that spoke everything into existence, that sustains galaxies, and you call him Dad. That's who you are. That's why I can write to you. That's why I can challenge you, because you are a child of the Father. And sometimes as Christians, we can, we can forget our first identity as child. Right? We can, there's so many other things we try to identify ourselves by. Man, how long have I been at church? Am I a member of this place? Am I serving in this? What? Whatever. No, no, you're a child. Again, least mature to most, you, you're a child if you're a Christian here this morning. A child of God. Look at verse 14, he says, I write to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. He's repeating what he said before. Don't miss it, don't de-emphasize it. The trajectory and orientation of maturity as a Christian is, is relationship, walking with him. Not something new, but day by day renewed in a loving relationship with Jesus. And then finally in 14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You're strong. When you're you're new to Christianity, when you're new to this relationship with Jesus, you feel a strength to fight and overcome sin that you've never experienced in your life before. There are things that you used to be a slave to and you start going, "I, I don't need that anymore. I don't want that anymore. I'm not who I used to be. But let's be real, sometimes you don't feel strong, right? Sometimes you get around the the old crowd or the the people you used to party with or whatever and you don't feel that same strength that you feel when you walk with Jesus. But it really isn't about what you feel, it's about who he says you are, amen? You are strong. The word of God abides in you. God's word, he makes it alive to you. This isn't a dusty textbook for you to try to go and memorize. This is God's word made alive in you. For you to know him and walk with him, you have overcome the evil one. In this beautiful poetic way, writing to every stage in the room this morning, John is trying to speak to us about who we are, about our identity. And he's saying our identity over and over is, is forgiveness over our sin. It's relationship with Jesus. It's overcoming the evil one. It's this, this incredible victory that we just sang about this morning. And more than victory, it's God's love applied to you. God putting his reputation on the line for you to be forgiven. God adopting you into his family at the cost of his son. Really, you can think of all of this this way as your identity is the result of his love. That sounds trite to say almost, right? Yeah, God loves me. But when you look at all of the ways He's trying to turn this diamond around and show you, God loves you in action, indeed, written in history, not just a passive emotion, but, but action for you. Again, if you're a Christian this morning, fundamental to who you are is someone loved by God. That's why you can receive these commands. That's why you can be challenged by John. That's why you can be invited to obey. That's the first half of our passage here. All of this identity language that John is kind of hiding behind his reason for writing this letter. He's saying, hey, this is who you are. You are a person that's living in the overflow of God's love. Now we're going to transition to the command. But, But catch this. Your identity comes before your obedience. I think Rob mentioned that last week. Over and over, the pattern of scriptures: God gives you an identity before he invites you to obey. This is not about obeying your way into God's good graces or love. This is about receiving from God first and responding to his love. You see that all through the Bible. Adam and Eve are given life by God, and then they're told to obey. Israel is ransomed from slavery by God. They are rescued powerfully, and then they're given the law. You are brought to new life in Jesus by his grace, and then you're taught to obey as a member of the family. So let's learn how to obey. First John 2 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't hold two loves in your heart. You can't have one hand grabbing on to, to God and the other hand grabbing on to everything else. You can't live both ways, and if you try to do that long enough, you're going to drift one way or another, and it doesn't seem to be possible to just casually drift your way towards God. You don't just drift into loving God when, when the pressure and the press from everything around you is to love of the world. You find yourself casually drifting into, like holiness. You find yourself drifting into being disciplined, when the press of, of waking up and looking at your phone or watching the news. Everything around you is towards loving something else. So what does this command mean, and how do you and I obey it? In verse 16, John is going to unpack and kind of turn over what he means by loving the world. Let's look at what he says. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. He, he gives us three different pieces of what he means by loving the world here. The desires of the flesh, and the eyes, and the pride of life. Let's unpack those so we can understand what he means by, by loving the world and the things in the world. First off, the desires of the flesh. Someone say flesh. Flesh is, is a New Testament kind of word in contrast to the spirit, where it's that part of us that is still marked by sin this side of eternity. Like you and I were born with an inclination, a direction built into us towards sin towards looking for hope or fulfillment or satisfaction in something other than God. It's that orientation inside of every one of us away from God, running from him. What's most natural to you is chasing sin, and what's supernatural is loving God. Now, sometimes we can, we can think about sin in terms of something happening to us, right? Oh, I was tempted by that out there. Man, the devil made me do it, right? The, sometimes we can think of sin as this external thing happening to us, but, but it seems like your greatest enemy might actually just live inside of you. This desire already built into you that is towards, again, looking for your hope or peace or significance in something other than God. And Paul writes about this in Romans 7 where he says, man, I know God's law, I know what God wants me to do, but I find inside of me this war raging, I don't do what I want to do. You ever felt that before? Maybe even again, you, you've, you've grown despairing of fighting your sin because you've seen this battle over and over, and you just don't feel like you have any fight left in you. This is that part of us that can, can sing worship on, on a Sunday morning and show up for work on Monday and actually be overly concerned with our status. Like your position in the, in the office hierarchy, or how much money you make, you're looking for some kind of security and peace. Or the thing that really has your heart is how your family just isn't quite, isn't quite the perfect family you want it to be. This orientation inside of us to find significance and hope and peace and security in something other than God. It's hardwired because of the fall into each and every one of the next thing he says is the desires of the eyes. This is a really interesting phrase. If you, if you read kind of a literal um, translation of Genesis 3, where Eve is tempted, this word eyes shows up over and over and over again. Like the serpent says, okay, th- this fruit, it's going to open up your eyes. And Eve looks at the tree and, and it's, it's delightful to her eyes. One translation I read said it's like lust to the eyes. It, it filled her eyes and Adam and Eve eat it and their eyes are opened. The desires of the eyes is when we hold a promise in front of ourselves other than the promise of God and it becomes so captivating and appealing. I, I'm not rejecting God, I'm just kind of forgetting him for a moment. Maybe it's that relationship that your community around you is like, no, no, don't. Don't pursue them. Don't, be, don't, don't commit your life to that person. What are you doing? That doesn't make sense. But when you're around them, you just kind of forget all of that. Or again, it's the It's the gossip you've been engaging in at work. And on your drive home, you're kicking yourself. You're like, why am I doing that? It doesn't make any sense. But but in the moment, fitting in and being part of it, it's just, it's right in front of your eyes and you almost can't even see anything around you. Or maybe it is your experience with with porn or sex where you know that's not what God has for you, but in the moment, you're not rejecting God. You just, it's like you forget. The promise of something else has been held so close in front of your eyes that you you can't even see the promise of God. And you've got a, a, a device in your pocket, you're like reading your Bible on it right now, that is geared around putting promises in front of your eyes. It's geared around holding something in front of you, holding a promise in front of you, where, again, you don't have to reject God, you can just forget about him for a little bit. The desires of the flesh, this inclination in front of, or inside of us, and the desires of the eyes, promises held up in front of us. The last thing he says, the pride of life. Uh, uh, maybe a better translation is kind of like the arrogance of possessions. This is this game that we, we play sometimes. The person who dies with the most toys wins, right? Have you heard that one? The desire to, to have a boat isn't a bad thing. Take me out on your sailboat. Let's go. Let's do this thing. But, but it's the thing that in my heart that responds to the object itself. Having a nice house isn't, isn't the issue. It's, it's the thing going on in my heart when I, when I don't have it or someone else has a nicer house. Like you don't have to have nice things to be greedy and take pride in possessions. Your heart can be just, just as jacked up without nice things. doesn't matter. We fix and fixate on, on stuff to try to give ourselves what? Meaning? <laughs> Position? Hope? Like maybe the clothes that you put on this morning coming to church was because you wanted people to think of you a certain way. And, and the press and the pressure of every advertisement you see is that, hey, your life won't be as meaningful and significant and valuable unless you have this. But don't worry, the latest iPhone, it's green now, right? So that is gonna give you hope and peace like you've never had, trust me. Although that might not even be the latest one anymore. I don't know, I'm sure there's a bigger camera or whatever, right? The arrogance of possessions, this is something that, especially in in America, we can fall for so easily. Having nice stuff is not the issue and, and even fundamentally wanting something isn't really the issue, it's what our hearts are doing, grabbing hold of it and attaching to it. Man, I can't be content and have satisfaction unless I have this. It might not be a boat for you. It might be a pair of shoes. It might be a new shirt. It might be a less crappy car, whatever. All three of these, when we kind of look at all three of them together, really they have the same root. It's taking the created things and putting them in the place of the creator. It's attaching hope and meaning in our lives to something other than the one who made us. I, I used to have this problem in my life. It might not sound like a problem to you, but I used to have no hobbies at all, right? I loved my job. I, could, I, I would think about my job all the time. I loved that. And, and recently, I have realized I almost have the opposite problem. I still love my job. Don't get me wrong there. But I have too many hobbies Right, and they're the kind of hobbies that you have to spend money and time on. I don't know if you have those. Um, My wife seems to have hobbies where people pay her money for them, and I have hobbies where I hand over lots of money. Um, And one of some of my hobbies, like, make a lot of sense, like sailing. Right, amazing. All of us want to be on a boat. It's beautiful. Um, If you don't, we don't have to be friends. That's okay. But the the another hobby makes a lot less sense to people. Um, I really got into the idea of running like a hundred mile trail race right? So, like, it's kind of a dumb thing, but it sounds incredible to me. There's something in me that's like, oh, that sounds really uh, painful and amazing. And I, I get sort of obsessive without hob- about hobbies sometimes, where I, I decided, not this year, but like in a couple years, I'm going to run a 100-mile trail race. So this year, I need to like be reviewing all the kinds of gear I can find on my phone, and just scrolling through different lists of like trail running backpacks, because that's a thing, and new kinds of shoes, even though I have shoes that work. But what if I need new shoes to run 100 miles? Because I gotta get the shoes. If I don't have the shoes, I can't run the race. Or like, read, I, I guys, I, I read like four books on running um, within the last month. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of ridiculous, right? Like books on running, that doesn't make any sense. Like just go out and move your legs. But, but it's all these stories of people running or watching YouTube videos of people like running through the Grand Canyon and see these incredible majestic views. And, and this question keeps coming up of like, why would you do this, right? Very legitimate question. Why would anyone want to do this? And these very successful athletes keep getting asked this question like, why did you start running like these silly distances. And 100 miles isn't even the longest race. Like you could run a 240 mile race if you want to. Go for it, have a great day. I'm settling for 100 miles. But th- this question keeps coming up and, and the, answers, the answers keep being something like, man, I just, I, I've, I wanna know myself better. And I wanna find like, they they can't even put words to it, but like, I want to find, you know, on the other side of the pain cave, like, like I'm a new, I'm a new kind of person. Like, I've just, I've experienced something else in life now that I've gone through this. But most people that start running these things don't stop running them. They don't typically stop at one. They keep adding more and more and more, and oddly enough, it's like once you run one, it doesn't really solve the issue. But can I just confess to you, as I've as I've been studying this passage and thinking about the last few months as I've been dreaming about running a 100-mile race, I see all three of these heart issues in me. Like this inclination in me to, to be reading a book on running at night instead of reading my Bible, which is like the, the dumbest equation ever, but I'm like, yeah, but this dude ran through the desert. I gotta hear about that. It sounds hot, right? Versus like, like getting to know the one that loves me and redeemed me. The promise that if I if I if I go through this incredibly difficult experience and train for it, on the other side there'll be something, something I don't have yet. And the arrogance of possessions as I'm scrolling through my phone looking at running shirts and shorts, how short should they be? Okay, pretty short, wow. Or or new shoes or backpack or whatever. Often when I think we look at our sin, it's, it's, it's maybe not just one category, but all three together like a rope twisted around your heart, where you, you feel in your mind like, I want to love God, but you see in your heart, you love something else. In the last verse of our passage, John is going to, to give us a little bit of a, a reason why we can start to fight, and then we're going to put a finer point on it together. Look at verse 17. He says, the world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Fundamentally, you are an eternal being. I don't care who you are in the room this morning. You are an eternal being. And he's saying, loving these things, giving yourself to these things is incompatible with who and what you are. You start falling in love with stuff that will pass away and you will live forever. Why are you giving your heart to something that that's not actually worth it? Like your money? Okay, you're gonna die and your money's gonna be meaningless. Your health? One day that will be gone no matter how hard you fight for it, no matter what shape you're in right now. Your, your career, your job title, no one in heaven or hell cares about your business card, guys. Your Instagram followers, cool, great, have fun with that. (laughs) Your toys, when you die, they're going to either rust or be given away anyway. Those things themselves aren't the issue, but it's the attachment to those things, the desire to hold on to those and hold them close to our hearts that we start to see the issue in us, this love of the world. And he's saying the one who does the will of God abides forever fundamental to knowing him is walking with him and obeying with him it's it's either one or the other your heart is like a sponge if it's full of the love of the world it can't be full of the love of the father so what do we do with this do you need to like walk out of here and like give all you own to the poor and start walking because jesus walked and whatever maybe like actually maybe you do need to take a hard look at the things that you've been giving yourself to but I, But I think on a more basic level than that, we need to understand the equation he's giving us. He's saying, if you love the world, there's no room in your heart for the love of the Father. But but what if you start to play it backwards? If you love the Father, if you let actually this relationship he's inviting you into captivate you more and more, maybe there will be less room in your heart to give yourself in love to these things that that aren't what you're built for. Like maybe if you begin to love the Father in a reflection of love he's given you, maybe your stuff will control you less. You'll be able to use it in a way that would actually line up with who he is and his will for you. See, I I think fundamental to our passage, I want to put this up on the screen. I think this is what we need to understand. You fight the love of the world with the love of the Father. It doesn't work to just tell yourself, hey, stop loving that. You need a bigger love, a better love to press out those smaller loves. You need to be enraptured and captivated with the love of the Father. And you can love him because he loved you first. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And in his overcoming, in his victory on the cross, he invites you in. You have a seat at the Father's table. You are called a child of God because the Son stepped out of heaven for you. He stepped out of eternity so that you wouldn't be an orphan anymore. You would be a child of God. He took on the penalty of your sins so that you wouldn't be stuck trying to pay back an impossible debt. But your debt would be wiped clean and more than that, you'd be counted righteous. You would be counted as a victor because of Jesus' victory. When all you have to offer is your sin and your failure. That's the kind of love that begins to rewire our other loves, isn't it? That's the kind of love that begins to fight and press out something less. Can your your position or your stuff do any of that for you? No. You don't need to fall in love with that. You don't need to give that stuff your time and your money and your energy. So here's very practically what I think we need to do with a message like this. We need to make time and space to fall in love with the one that's loved us. If you're in a relationship, you know it takes time and it takes money, amen? Husband's like, yes, okay. Um, do you give time and energy and space for your relationship with God? Like, I'm not talking about, like, coffee dates with Jesus, Instagramming an empty seat across from me, right? You can do that if you want, but, but I mean, do you live as if you're in a relationship that takes some of your time? Like disciplines and things like that aren't just because you need to be a disciplined person, but because relationships take work. And and God is wooing you into a relationship that you can give him time to fall in love with him. I think one thing you could do very practically, giving him time this week, I, I want you to try this actually. I want you to try praying back verses 12 through 14 back to God. Like, pray back the identity things he's done back to him. Give him the time in relationship and and go, I thank you that my sins are forgiven. Thank you that I get to be called your child. Thank you that you put your name and reputation on the line when it came to forgiving and redeeming me. Thank you that I get to know you and grow in relationship with you forever. Like, imagine if you prayed through those things this week. Do you think you'd love him a little bit more? you think you'd love him a little bit more when you, when you held in front of your own eyes the things he's done for you and you talked to him about it? So I think, I think one thing we need to do is just begin to give him the time to fall in love with him. I think another thing we can do is, is examine the other loves in our hearts. Let me ask you this. If, if you knew for certain Jesus was coming back tomorrow, would you be like, yeah, that's awesome, but I really wish I would have like, graduated first. Man, I really wish I would have gotten married first. Like, engaged people, like, yes, I've been planning for so long. Jesus, wait two more months. Man, I I really wish I I could have gone on that vacation. I was almost retired, and I, I had these plans. Man, if the, if the Packers would have won the Super Bowl one more time, Jesus, just wait. Are there any holdouts in your heart? Just little pockets you've been holding on to, like, Jesus, you're great, but you're You'd be even better if I could have this too. Would you, would you confess those to him in relationship this week? Like let him expose those and then, and then confess that? God, I've been putting other things in front of you, Jesus. I, I want to love you more. We need to fall in love with him and we need to examine the holdouts in our hearts. I think the last thing we need to do is we need to invest in, in each other. Like all of this language about our identity is actually our identity together as a community. Like we are his children together. Like we have spiritual mothers and fathers in here. We are are young men and women in the faith together. When you invest in someone else, you get a front row seat to God's work and you're going to fall in love with him more when you watch him work in that person. Because sometimes if you're just looking at your own heart and your own struggles, it can feel like, like desperate and almost morbid. Like, God, are you really here? Are you really working? But when you get to see him work in someone else, you get to see his faithfulness when he answers prayers. You need to show up for community, partially for your own heart, to love the one who's working in this community more and more. We need to invest in each other. If you don't have a connection group, we'd love for you to get in one. If you don't have people close to you, Maybe you need to look at someone around that is spiritually mature and go, hey, can you teach me to walk with Jesus? Like, can you show me like, how you read the Bible? How you pray? And give them a front row seat to God's growth in your life and you a front row seat to watching them walk with Him and falling in love with Him. Doc said, that's, that's the challenge for us this morning. To fight the love of the world with the love of the Father. I want to I want to play out two pictures for us as we close this morning. What would happen if we kind of all agreed together like, yeah, that sounds really hard. I don't think I'm going to do it. Like, yeah, I, I've been on that bad diet plan before. I don't, I don't really want to sign up for it again. What if we just kind of agreed together to sort of forget this message and show up again next week? I think church would keep clicking along for a little bit. But we, we'd all turn around together and we'd realize we don't look that much different than anyone else. Yeah, we, we, could, we could play the church game and sing some nice songs, but, but the power and life of people in love with the Father, that would, it would disappear. It would evaporate like mist in the morning. And the best we would have is playing this church game and beating ourselves up for not living up to what God's inviting us to. That's not what God has for us. That's not the kind of church I want you to be part of, and that's not, that's not what we want for you just living with these two loves in our hearts until eventually the love of the world captures us. It's not what you were made for. But Doxa, what if, what if we took this command seriously and we began to fall more and more in love with the Father? Like, what if you let yourself be wooed and captivated by the one who saved you and redeemed you and loves you? Like what if you let your, your, the promise in front of you be the promise of life with God forever, the one you were made for, the one that you were designed to be satisfied by? I think you'd find freedom. Like freedom to begin fighting sin in ways you've never fought before. Freedom to use the good gifts of God and, and the things that he's given you actually for his glory and his purposes, not just to fill a hole in you. I think we'd, we'd be free to be on mission together not opposed to the city kind of shaking our fists, but actually people would come in and go, you have an answer that I've been desperate for. What is it? And we could tell them it's, it's Jesus. And we could show them with our lives it's Jesus, and we could show them with our stuff it's Jesus. The one we're in love with, the, the one we can't help but talk about is him. But let's pray together and invite him to help us fall in love with him and fight the love of the world with the love of the Father. Will you pray with me? Jesus, this morning I confess with my friends here that we we do have holdouts and pockets in our hearts and lives where we love the world. We do put our our stuff or our status in in a place it, it should never be in our lives. Spirit, would you convict us specifically and individually of those places this morning? And more than that, would you show us how beautiful Jesus is? The one that saves us and redeems us and brings us into the presence of the Father. Father, would you help us fight to fall more in love with you because of who you are? And would you let your love shine through us as a community to a city and to a world that's desperate for that kind of love? We need you. And would you change us even as we worship together this morning? We pray in your name. Amen.